ESV. If you do not have a Bible with you, or if your Bible is not ESV and you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the uh, pew in front of you or the chair in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at all, then please take the one from the seat in front of you and take it home. 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from the f- following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. 
For if a man finds his enemy, will he not, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Father, your word is so precious and revealing and so powerfully cuts away the pretension and illusion and delusion that we have of ourselves and of the world around us. You speak truth and reality into our very hearts. And you're doing it today through 1 Samuel 24. God, give us ears to hear it, give us eyes to see, may heaven's glories be before us and our hearts desire them above all the vanities of this world. Humble us before your word this morning, I pray, and, and use these lips filled with pretension as they may be. Humble them that it may be your, your voice speaking. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As I've said before in the sermon series, the, the kings that would come to reign over Israel in the centuries following 1 Samuel were unbelievably evil. Uh, we can hardly imagine it. They were treacherous and greedy and unjust, and they were not afraid to sacrifice their own children to false gods, passing them through the fire, as it was called. So compared to them, Saul, he's not so bad. And generally speaking, Saul was actually quite devout, especially in the beginning. But things were not as they seemed, as has become, I think, quite apparent to us now. Though Saul was religious, he didn't know Yahweh. Instead of a relationship with God, Saul continually pursued his own interests. He looked out for number one, and he cloaked it all in this pretense of piety and self-righteousness. And it's very much like the self-righteousness that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 10. There we read, they, the self-righteous, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're passionate for God, but they do not know Him. That's a scary idea. That that exists. Now, it's not because the, God didn't make Himself available to Saul. He most certainly did. He most certainly did. God made Himself available God offered himself to Saul, and Saul rejected God because he was interested in his own pursuits. And consequently, Saul was rejected by God. Important to remember this for our passage today. 
God had rejected Saul, but it doesn't mean that, that Saul was immediately cast out of, out of the kingship. It, was, it wasn't immediately the throne being taken from it. It meant that Yahweh no longer supported Saul. Saul was out there on his own, and out there on his own, he would wither on the vine, because only, you can only live if you abide in the vine. And now Saul was out there, alone, withering away, and God promised now to raise up a better man, a man after his own heart, David. So as Saul withers away, David becomes stronger and stronger. And the place that this becomes most apparent, most poignant in the narrative of David is right here in 1 Samuel 24. As Saul is withering away and David is increasing. So as we look at this today, I want you to see how that happens, how Saul begins to diminish while David begins to increase. I want you to see in David these shadows of Jesus and in Saul, shadows of us. And you'll see what I mean, I think. And then in this passage, I also want to identify a pattern of conviction and repentance, which is so apparent, so loud in 1 Samuel 24. So remember last week, sermon from last week, there's absolutely no joy in Saul's heart after David had rescued the Judean city of Kaliah, or Kyla. He rescued that city from the Philistines, and, and Saul is not pleased about it at all. No, instead, he is flooded with hatred for David, for vengeance for David. He wants to kill David. And so instead of celebrating, Saul musters the full military might of Israel to kill David and his 600 men. Last week, we saw the people of Kilah prepared to betray David into Saul's hands. And then we saw the, the Ziphites actually betray David and give up his location to Saul. And then Saul hunts them down. This perilous game of cat and mouse begins. Saul the hunter, David the hunted. And just as Saul's closing in on David, ready to overtake him, just within grasp, with his overwhelming force, Saul receives word that the Philistines have begun a major raid back in the north. And Saul has no choice but to leave this pursuit of David and fight with the Philistines. At the very last moment, God wields the will of nations and he saves David. Now, of course, Saul has no ability to recognize what God has just done. And he entirely misses it. Because after he defeats these Philistines, apparently swiftly, he again takes up the hunt because all Saul can see is his own fear and his own rage. So he goes to pursue David again. And that's where we pick up chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. So the Philistines, they were dealt with, and apparently Saul returns to the wilderness of Ziph, where, he, where David was last. He's hoping that the, the trail hasn't gone cold. He wants to pick it up again and hunt him down. And the trail hasn't gone cold, because somebody tells him where David is, exactly where David is. I imagine it's the Ziphites again. 
David's in the wilderness of the Engedi. Now, the wilderness of Engedi is a very broken landscape, and it's right on the western edge of the Dead Sea. The landscape is torn by mountains and rocks and cliffs, many, many caves, and it's an impossible terrain to maneuver an army within. So Saul sheds the bulk of the army for an elite fighting force of 3,000 men. These would be like his special forces. And remember, 3,000 still vastly outnumbered David's 600. So he has the advantage. Look again, look at verse 3. And he, Saul, came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. So I mentioned the wilderness of Engedi has all these cliffs, and these cliffs are torn up by caves. And some of these caves are large enough and conveniently located enough that nomadic shepherds and Bedouins would use these caves to corral their sheep into, like a sheep pen or a sheepfold. They'd put them in the cave and stand outside to keep them there, protect them. It's one of these caves that Saul wanders into thinking it's empty. Obviously, he's separating himself from his men to get some privacy. Now, the English is polishing up the language for us. The Hebrew doesn't. The Hebrew is unashamed to say what's going on. And if, that, if the Bible's unashamed, I'm not going to be ashamed. So it says, essentially, the Hebrew indicates that Saul goes in there to go number two. And I do point that out because I think it's going to be a lot harder to sneak up on somebody if they're standing, number one, rather than sitting, number two. So he's in there doing his business, back in verse 3. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So we shouldn't let the humor and the irony of this event escape us. Saul scours the wilderness looking for David, entirely unable to find David. Here, in a very awkward moment, David has found Saul never having looked for him. Ever since David has been introduced in 1 Samuel, he is, he's always been in this position of vulnerability, maybe except for the story of Goliath. But he's been in this position of vulnerability while power dynamic switches for the first time. Saul is vulnerable. He is quite literally exposed. He is compromised. And the text not to point out the embarrassing nature of it. David, on the other hand, has the upper hand. He has the power. And to David's men, it couldn't be any more clear what's going on right here. Yahweh has delivered Saul into your hand. Here he is, served up on a platter. It couldn't be any more easy than this. They sh he, he should eliminate Saul, who hunts them, who hunts all of them. This is the moment of victory. You know, David's men are actually twisting the words of Yahweh a little bit and, and directing them at Saul because they finish their brief speech with, do to him as it seems good to you. Do whatever seems right in your heart. 
David. To us, it seems that their, their language might be cloaked a little bit, but David knows exactly what they meant. They're using a common euphemism of the, of the day. They are encouraging David to kill Saul. They want to rid themselves of this terrible king. So again, the kingdom is being offered to David, and his men are tempting him with it. Take the kingdom. Can you think of anything that might foreshadow? David is in the wilderness being tempted with the kingdom. If he would only take it. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to pray and fast and face temptation. And one of Satan's temptation was to take the kingdom. Take the easy throne. Just take it. You won't have to die. Back in the cave, at the urging of his men, David sneaks up, on, sneaks up on Saul with a ready knife. And right in this moment, David is judge. He can kill Saul so easily. He can exact justice. Truly, justice demanded Saul's death at this point. He had the power to execute him. And David does respond to the temptations of his men. Yet he doesn't fully succumb. He doesn't kill Saul, right? He knows that it's wrong. He knows that he cannot take the throne through murder, blood on his hands to get the kingdom. So instead he opts for this playful gesture and he slices off a piece of Saul's robe. So David's immediate judgment is not death. It is mercy. Now a little speculation here. I think it's very possible that Saul takes off his outer robe and lays it aside so he can comfortably do his business, which would make it a lot easier for David to secretly cut, up, cut off a piece of Saul's robe. Have you been in the cave before? You can hear everything. So I think the robe is laid aside. David cuts a piece from it. Why does David cut a piece from the robe? I think there's some practical reasons for his men's sake. But there's a symbolic reason. Do you remember what robes symbolize in First and Second Samuel? They symbolize the kingdom. David does not kill Saul. He will not take the kingdom that way, but he cuts a piece of his robe, symbolizing that he will take the kingdom. And then he immediately regrets it. Look at that, verse 5. Immediately, his heart is struck. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid me that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David is a man after God's own heart, truly. And that heart is immediately struck by his own folly. How quickly he grieves what he, what he was doing, what, what he thought was right in his own eyes. He thought it was right, and yet he has grieved by it. The kingdom was not David's to take. 
It was the Lord's to give. And it's a scene that's meant to remind us of earlier in 1 Samuel, where Saul is rejected. 1 Samuel 15, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And here you can see the Lord himself will give the kingdom to a better man. A better man than Saul. Because David is a man after God's own heart, he knows in his heart that it is not his to take what God has promised. It is not his to take what God has promised to give. This is such a lesson for us. All of us, all of our sins are us trying to prematurely take what God has promised to give. It's where we constantly go wrong, constantly fall in, into pits. So you want pleasure? In Psalm 1611, God promises everlasting pleasure at his right hand. You want significance? God names you his sons and daughters and he gives you the new heavens and the new earth to rule over. You want wealth? God calls you his heir and then he empties heaven of all that he has and he gives it to his sons and his daughters. And yet to truly experience the fullness of these glories, we have to wait in faith. We have to wait. Wait on the Lord's timing. Believe in God's promises and live faithfully, obediently while we wait. For the fullness lies yet ahead. And so with astonishing clarity, David recognizes this. And this is exactly why his heart is struck. He'd been trying to take, or even it's a symbolic gesture that he would take what God had promised to give, and his heart is struck. And then notice the incredibly rapid nature of David's conviction and repentance that follows his sin. He sins and then conviction and then repentance with, like, with almost no hesitation. He doesn't repent merely with words, though he does use words. But he repents with action. He declares these things to his troops. He says, this is the Lord's anointed. This is the man. And then he holds his troops back, prevents them from killing Saul. And so we see that to be after God's own heart, a person after God's own heart, is to have a conscience that is sensitive to sin. And I don't mean a conscience that is sensitive to other people's sin. Sensitive to your own sin. A lack of sensitivity to your own sin means that you have become desensitized to sin. Or in biblical terms, it means that you are searing your conscience. 
And so time in God's Word and time communing with your Father through prayer and time with the saints and time obeying Jesus and, and serving others, all of these things help to soften and rightly calibrate our conscience. We must do these things. Because a person with a hard conscience is in a dangerous position. And so with soft heart and a sensitive conscience or rightly calibrated conscience, when your heart is convicted, you realize that there is this fissure growing between you and your heavenly Father. And to a person after God's own heart, this is intolerable. There is nothing worse than the concept of being separated from your Father. So a person after God's own heart, who has deviated from God's heart, immediately wants to get back to God's heart. You want repentance. You turn from that sinful thing. You don't want to go back to it, even if it hurts you, even if it feels like you're dying to yourself, and you take action to run back to God. followers of Christ, this is the pattern that we need to adopt desperately. This is the pattern that David is adopting in 1 Samuel 24. Look what happens next in verse 8. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and he called after Saul, my Lord, my King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. The humility and the contrition and the repentance of David as he bows to the earth and calls this enemy who has been so mercilessly hunting him, he calls him, my Lord, my King. Who among us has a heart like David, has such respect? <laughs> if our president holds a different view than us, and he passes laws that we disagree with, then we say he's no king of ours. But David's king hunts him, wants to kill him. And David bows himself to the ground in incredible humility, and he pays homage to Saul. Or he's publicly honoring Saul. There's nearly 4,000 men listening. Did not Jesus say we must give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And did Jesus not pray for the rulers and authorities who had persecuted him? And did he not ask his father to forgive those who were driving the nails through his arms? He did. And David, right here in the Engedi, prefigures the meekness of the Son of God. Perhaps, perhaps, some of us can already see something for which we need to repent. Imagine Saul's surprise when he walks out of that cave doing what he's done and he hears his name from the cave and he whips around in the direction of, it, of that, that restroom and he sees David face down on the ground. Now David is utterly vulnerable. And only after displaying this profound loyalty to Saul does David begin to speak to Saul. And he says in verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men 
who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David's speech here is structured for an ancient courtroom. David is the one on trial. David's like putting himself on trial, and he's putting Saul now in the position of judge. David was just judge, sparing Saul's life. Now he's putting Saul into the position of judge. And he says, you've listened to the testimony of so many different voices. Saul, how have I sinned against you? What harm have I ever done? He's pleading for his own innocence. Now, I said David has sinned, but he sinned in his own heart, and the offense was against God. He has not sinned against Saul. He has not brought any harm to Saul, so he can rightly say to Saul, I have not sinned. David says that even with the opportunity to harm Saul, he could have. He didn't pounce. And then he presents that piece of the robe as evidence when he presents the piece of evidence, do you see how his language shifts? And he says to Saul, my father. Now technically it's true. David is married to Saul's daughter and Saul is his father-in-law, but that's not what he means here. David is showing that despite all these terrible events and the injustices that threaten to drown him, he still loves Saul like a father. Somehow he still loves Saul like a father. And he's not posturing. He's not just putting on this facade to look good in front of everybody and to make Saul somehow feel guilt. No, David loves this enemy as his own family, as his father. Do you see Jesus there? Jesus said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And then he says, in John 15, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. So love your enemies. The greatest love is to lay down your life for your friends. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies of God, like tragic Saul, blind by our own self-interest. But God loved us so much that he died for us to make us his enemies into his friends, bring us into his kingdom, call us sons and daughters. David says, mm. For Samuel 24, 11, he says essentially, though you mercilessly seek my life, I have mercilessly, or mercifully spared yours. 
And again, David wants to consider, what have I ever done to harm you, Saul? And then David reminds Saul and the nearly 4,000 soldiers that are standing there listening, who is the true almighty judge over all of them? Verses 12 through 15. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David cites this ancient proverb, out of the wicked comes wickedness, he's not saying anything against Saul, though there is definitely an implication there. David's saying that if he's wicked, then where's the wickedness, Saul? Where's the wickedness coming out of him? What has Saul to cite against David except these rumors? And then he asks Saul to consider a second argument. Why do you hunt me? Who am I? I'm an, I'm an insignificant dead dog, even lower. I'm lower. I'm like a flea. In other words, what possible threat does David posed to Saul, who wields the whole military might of Israel. What threat is David? And look, David hasn't harmed Saul. He's loyal to Saul. He loves Saul. This king should regard David as threatening as a flea. Sandwiching that argument, David says, may the Lord judge. May God sift us both, Saul. Because David knows that his vindication is coming. He knows his innocence. And God will vindicate him. And he knows that Saul's actions will be Saul's own undoing. And as Scripture says, vengeance is the Lord's. It's not David's to take. David doesn't need to take vengeance. He just needs to wait. And the only thing that David asks for in that whole speech is that Besides for Saul to consider, the only thing he asks for is that Saul give up the pursuit. Because no reason to be pursuing him. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And, David, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. The gravity of David's actions come crashing mightily down upon Saul. And he responds to David's, my father, with my son. He can just hear it. Saul is reminded of better times. 
He's reminded that he cannot miss the power of David's love and loyalty and meekness and, and all these things undeservedly given to him, and he weeps. It just floods out of him. It spills out of him. One commentator writes, Saul weeps because he must now face what he has long known. He weeps because he must now confront the truth he has avoided. In the moment of confronting the reality of David, Saul must face the truth of his own life. No wonder he must cry, for he must acknowledge not only that David will win and that he will lose, but that his whole effort to be faithful, effective, and powerful, and even righteous, has failed. And right there, I think we see, we see Jesus in the face of David, and we see all the rest of us in the face of Saul. Because God calls all of us to allow the reality of Jesus Christ to confront the truth of our own lives and all of our attempts to self-justify and to be effective in this life and to be good enough and everything else that we work and we toil over them, all of it, all of it will fail when we come ultimately before the judge of all the earth. We have not been good enough. But Christ will stand. He does stand. And his righteousness, it does reach to the heavens. In all the ways that we have fallen, Christ has overcome. And so if we, if we just come to Jesus, if we just trust in him, and then forgiveness that he prayed over his enemies is applied to us, and we are forgiven, and he brings us into his family, and he covers us with his robes, his robes of victory and righteousness and acceptance. Whether you have believed for decades or if, if never before, you come by faith to Jesus today and receive these glories from a king who is so merciful and so meek, he will cover you with his robes, hide you in his garments, where you will be safe. After publicly spending his tears, Saul then responds to David again in verse 20. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. After all this time and toil, we finally hear Saul say it. He says, I know. It's like this great admission. You can just feel this huge weight roll off of his shoulders as he says, I know. You will be king, David. You are king. We've heard the people of Israel say that David is king. We've heard the Philistines call David king. We have heard Saul's own son, Jonathan, call David king. And Jonathan's even said that, David, that, that Saul really does know it. 
But now we hear it from Saul's mouth. David will be king. And it is the final consummate admission slash proclamation in 1 Samuel. Saul's weeping has most truly been sincere. From the mouth of the rejected king, David is declared Yahweh's anointed. And this is an admission far more than what David was looking for. He wasn't looking for Saul to say this. Saul only asks that when David comes to power, he not destroy his family, Saul's family. Don't cut off my, my bloodline. And this is the way of the world, the ancient world. The new ruler would seek to erase the memory of the ruler that he has just displaced. Just look at history. It's filled with stories of bloodshed like that. Saul asks David, don't, don't do that. Show mercy to my lineage. You see how much Saul has decreased. He's afraid of his entire lineage being eliminated. And he wholly admits it publicly. The inevitability of David's rise. David will increase. Saul will decrease. So David agrees to Saul's request. But it's nothing new. David has already promised this to Jonathan. Back in 1 Samuel 20, 42, he promised that he would love Jonathan and Jonathan's offspring forever. So he gives to Saul nothing. Saul receives this as a promise. He admits defeat. He goes home. He gives up the hunt. Very sadly, the Bible, I think, shows us that Saul is a tragic figure. You know, he's seems like such real repentance right here. Like in this moment in front of the cave, his heart is pierced. He's overflowing with emotion and he's speaking and thinking with truth for the first time in a long time. But it's temporary. It's not true repentance. Just two chapters later, Saul's going to take up the hunt again and hunt down David. And David's going to spare Saul's life again. Brothers and sisters, that is a warning to us. Sincerity and emotion and confession and overtures, none of that means repentance. Be as sincere as you want in a moment And it doesn't mean one bit that you've repented. Now, sincerity, emotion, and confession can all be a part of repentance. But true repentance is the one that's followed by obedience, action, faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. Continuing to trust in His promises rather than the things that you can try to take for yourself. That's repentance. A life you try to take for yourself will take everything from you. Like gaining the whole world and losing your own soul. What good is it? Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross. Repentance must, must be followed by trusting in Jesus and following Jesus. Why? Because He loved you and gave Himself for you. 
He spilled His blood that yours need not be spilled. That is the fruit of repentance. That's the type of repentance that floods the Almighty Judge's heart with abounding mercy. And He will see your repentance. And He will say, forgiven. It is finished. Welcome home. Father, we give you such praise, such honor, such glory for offering to us forgiveness and freedom and life, love, free of cost. At the price of Christ's own blood. Help us now since we need not pay a cost to give you all of our lives, all of our life, as an expression of worship, obedience, love, loyalty. Not because of our love for you, but because of your great love for us. Thank you, Father, for your word. How you show us these gospel glories and the face of David, and Saul, and all of these all of these wild stories in 1 Samuel. Thank you that your plan has never changed. That the way you work then is the way that you work now. And the mighty stories unfolding in David, there are mighty stories unfolding here. So we thank you, and we trust you, and we believe. So Father, help our unbelief. And lead us in repentance every day. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.